Well, good morning again, uh, and welcome to Courtright. I want to add to Allison's welcome. Uh, my name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtright Church, and it is an honor to be with you, uh, whether you're here in the room, it's wonderful to have you all, or whether you are online. When my daughter Iris was very little, uh, we developed the habit, as a lot of parents do, of reading bedtime stories even long before she really understood what they were, what their words were. Um, You know, we'd read books like Goodnight Moon or uh, Guess How Much I Love You, like the classics, like the greatest hits. Um, These these stories were very short because she's little, and they were very to the point. There was no mistaking their meaning whatsoever. There was no question coming from her, even when she was able to start kind of asking things. There was no question from her about, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? It was very clear. It was not, the meaning was not veiled at all. Now, Jesus, in the Gospels, he loved telling stories, many of them very short. In fact, many of them shorter than the stories that I would share with my daughter. And yet they were rarely, if ever, to the point In fact, Jesus' followers actually asked him about this in Matthew chapter 13. And this is kind of the introduction to our summer series, Working Through the Parables. And so this isn't our primary text for this morning, but it's going to be sort of a a preamble as we get into this series. But we're going to be staying in Matthew chapter 13 for the bulk. So Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 10. The disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him. The disciples came to him and asked Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, and they have closed, sorry, hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So this summer, we're going to be in the parables of Jesus. And so since I'm starting us off, it's worth taking just a couple minutes to talk a little bit about the nature and the purpose of parables. Initially, this passage above might seem a little confusing. It's kind of like, Jesus, don't you want us to understand? Don't you want us to hear and see? And I believe that though there's no simple way to soften what Jesus says here, he really does want us to understand. He's conveying to his followers essentially this, that if you want truth, seek it. If you want understanding, you have to find it. Jesus is describing a little bit of a vetting process wherein some people hear his short stories, 
They don't understand it, and they just get frustrated and angry, and they wander off. Others will hear Jesus' stories, and their curiosity is piqued. They just have to know what Jesus meant by that. Why did he say that? Why did he use that, uh, you know, that story and not another? Jesus invites all of us to seek understanding. But Jesus also knew that there were many that would reject that invitation. The condition of our heart is revealed in how we respond and, and understand these stories. Do we get frustrated or upset? Do we assume the meaning, maybe even to the point of arrogance? Or do we approach them with humility and curiosity? The parables of Jesus act a little bit like a filter. I'm also struck with something that Jesus says about parables here. He says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, meaning to the disciples who asked, but not to them. Now, that's a loaded statement. What was this secret, and why was it revealed to them, but not to others? What's the dividing line? I think based on, and by the way, this is complicated. There's a, Allison was telling me this week that her intervarsity group years ago, like they spent like weeks trying to like discern this. And so this is a very brief summation of some of that. But it seems as though on the context of many of the parables, the secrets of the kingdom were revealed to those who asked. And there's something actually in the asking that is important. It indicates a readiness of the condition of our hearts. So in a way, we could argue that the secret is to ask. To quote Jesus elsewhere, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And I want us to approach this each week in this parable series like Jesus wanted us to approach the parables, with a curiosity that invites questions. Maybe to ask a challenging question about the passage or maybe deeper grappling with how to live out this passage in your everyday life or in the life of the church for that matter. So I would invite you to also consider how we as a church can be a place that sparks curiosity and questions. What stories are we telling that would invite people to know more about who Jesus is? Just something to consider as we launch into these, this parable series. So today we're going to go over just two verses, really. There's going to be a few more along the way, but two verses that represent one very short parable. So with all that is in view about parables, together we're going to seek meaning and understanding in the words of Jesus through the parable of the mustard seed. So we're going to just go a little further down in that chapter uh, at Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. This is the word of the Lord. At a kind of very meta level, this parable is small and easily skipped over, yet it is bursting with kingdom potential and meaning. 
So in this parable and elsewhere, Jesus often spoke about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, depending on which gospel you're in. This was very familiar language to the people. Those in Israel knew what the kingdom was. They used to have a kingdom in a different way. They used to be a nation. They longed for the day when they would once again be a nation. They longed for the day when God would again rule as their king, as opposed to being under Roman rule. So using phrases like kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven was very comfortable. But what was not understood was that Jesus meant something so much more powerful and so much greater than just a nation. Kingdoms rise and fall. They come and go because before the Romans were the Greeks and the Persians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and so on and so forth. But the kingdom of heaven is eternal. The kingdom of heaven was not the future of a specific nation. Jesus here is describing an invitation to join the incredible kingdom work that God has in store for all his people. The simplest definition of kingdom is this. The kingdom is life as God intended it to be. The kingdom is life as God intended it to be. So if the kingdom of God enters a human heart or it enters into kind of a city or nation, it means that that person or that people group are living their lives as God intends it. It's putting to rights the injustices of the world. It's bringing a heart of love into the world that is often so filled with hate. It is about the gospel of the cross of Jesus being proclaimed, but not only proclaimed, but it being lived out. It's about taking the grace by which we have been saved and recognizing that we are not simply saved from something. We are not simply saved from sin and death, but we are saved to something, namely to join in this incredible kingdom, to partner with what God is already doing so that we need, so we need to keep this in mind as we, uh, as we hear that word, as we listen into that word. Jesus was sort of subverting the idea of kingdom a little bit. Every time he mentioned it, really, that the kingdom of heaven is not just a temporal place, but an eternal indwelling of God's justice on earth. The kingdom is the power of Jesus, the power of the cross, and the power of the resurrection in motion. So this enormous idea of the kingdom, this huge and powerful idea, Jesus says, It's like a mustard seed. It's a mustard seed that someone plants in a field. He compares this massive concept, this otherworldly concept, to this minuscule, tiny seed. So the hearers would have been nodding their heads as he's talking about the kingdom of God, and then they would have raised their eyebrows a little bit as he talked about something so small, like a mustard seed. If we were to sum up the point of the parable of the mustard seed, it would be this. The kingdom of heaven, even with its humble, lowly beginnings, will grow and spread into something so much greater and grander than we could have ever imagined. So I want to approach how we understand this parable, maybe less as kind of a list of points. Often we'll have, you know, points one, two, and three, maybe a bonus one or something. I want to talk about this more in terms of like layers. So there's two layers, I think, to this parable that I want to look at 
Um, they all kind of fall under this main idea that the kingdom of heaven is going to grow into something large and majestic and wonderful, more than we ever could have imagined. That's the basic idea. But I want to start off with a slightly less obvious layer to it. And the less obvious layer is actually a little bit more subversive. It's this, that the kingdom, like a mustard plant, can be kind of like a weed. Now, I know that um, that maybe is a little bit of like a, a sensationalist take on that, but just hear me out for a second, okay? There are reports from ancient world texts from people like uh, ancient Roman author Pliny the Elder, and he spoke about the invasiveness of this particular plant. By the way, I am not a horticulturalist, so farmers can come and correct me afterward, but I'm just, I'm just going by what I read. Anyway, um, so Pliny the Elder, he spoke about the invasiveness of this particular species. And then there's the Mishnah, which is kind of the, the writing down, that it's the capturing of all of the oral traditions of the Jewish people. They decreed that mustard seeds should not be planted with other species of plants because their tendency is to just take it over completely. So instead, um, mustard seeds were to be planted in a much larger field, totally separate from everything else, because it was just going to spread around. The idea is if you plant one and it sprouts up, it's going to germinate absolutely everywhere. I don't believe Jesus only chose the mustard seed just because it's a small seed that grows into something big. That is true. There is something central to the nature of the mustard seed itself. Jesus could have chosen any number of, of plants or trees or whatever. There's something specific about the mustard seed, though, that the hearers would have been intrigued by. Remember, Jesus' point here was to provoke questions and curiosity. What if, in part, this parable is speaking about the inevitability of God's kingdom in the same way that I will weed my lawn and mow it and then three days later it's covered in dandelions and whatever else, the kingdom of God is inevitable. The kingdom of God, like a mustard plant, will spread with or without our help. All you have to do is plant one seed, let it grow. It will spread everywhere. God wants us to join in like that. He wants us to join in with what he is already doing. But if you don't, it's going to keep happening. God will find another way. That's just what God does. The kingdom of God is an unstoppable force in the wake of an unstoppable God who desires to see his unstoppable love envelop the world. Now, I don't say this to suggest that we should be annoying or obnoxious like a weed, or that we should impose, this is really important, or that we should impose our faith on people by force. We should not do that. But rather, this should give us great confidence that God goes before us and God leads us. That the spread of the kingdom can't be hindered or thwarted by whatever cultural moment we find ourselves in. I see this often on social media where people will be talking about you know, whatever extreme conversation is happening in politics or whatever else, and be like, this is a threat to the gospel. Really? No. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this is not a threat to the gospel. Jesus continues to be at work and continues to do amazing, remarkable things around the world. 
I think it's even important to remember as we think on global Christianity, it's easy for us to look at the Western world and Christianity's place in the Western world and sort of look and be like, well, things are dwindling a little. This is a bit scary and it can become a a worry that are we losing ground? Are we losing traction? Um, I would just say that it is so critical that we keep a global perspective on our faith, that around the world, um, the, the kingdom of God is germinating in ways we would have never thought imaginable. If you go, if you, not that you can go anywhere right now, but if you went to China or South America or Southeast Asia, so many different areas where the gospel is just exploding. It's amazing. If you think Christianity is shrinking, I would encourage you to put a different lens on. I believe that this layer of the parable gives greater depth and meaning to the plain reading, the more obvious layer, this idea that small beginnings lead to great endings. Small beginnings lead to great endings. That when we know that God is in control, that this thing is going to happen, we get to join in. It's an amazing thing when we just realize that this little tiny thing is going to grow something amazing. In the book of the prophet of Zechariah, um, they're rebuilding the temple hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, but God says this to his people. He says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. How encouraging is that? God says, This thing I'm doing might seem really small right now, but just wait. You're going to see how massive this is going to become. This tiny little mustard seed will become a huge plant. And this goes both on a micro and a macro level. On a macro level, the entire kingdom of God, as we collectively do all of these things, as we collectively seek to live life the way God intended in small and big ways, as we seek to live as kingdom people, the world is transformed and renewed. This is the vision that Jesus has laid out for us. The kingdom of God starts with a select few in the first century uh, as a group of just a few disciples, and now there are two plus billion Christians around the world all seeking to live life as God intends, to restore peace, to bring hope to a hopeless and desperate world. Do not despise small beginnings. Amen? Amen. What about if we zoom in a little bit more? That's kind of the macro level. What about the micro level? What about this particular expression of the kingdom that we call Courtright Presbyterian Church? We're a small fraction of the body of Christ, even in Guelph, let alone the world. What kingdom impact could we possibly have? I love the words of Mother Teresa here. She says, we can do no great things only small things with great love. Mother Teresa could only do so much herself. She was one woman, but the ripple effect of caring for the forgotten and the most vulnerable in our world continues today in part because of the amazing work that she did. With great love, we can do so many incredible things. With great love, we can grow a literal garden out back that is going to nourish the bodies of untold amounts of people. I think about the fact that we don't know 
all the recipients of that. We might give them to various mission organizations to distribute to the needy. We don't know who it's going to go to from there. It's a remarkable, amazing thing to think that the food that is growing back there right now will go into the uh, kitchens and eventual, eventually bellies of people who need it. And that's an, a remarkable thing that we don't know the impact that that is having. We will never fully see the scope of that, but it's a remarkable thing. With great love, we can slowly build trust and bridges within our neighborhood here in Guelph, sparking curiosity about the God that we love and serve. With great love, we can share our homes, our life, our faith with those who don't yet know the love of Jesus, and not as projects by any means, but just as fellow image bearers and friends. We're getting to the point, I think, very soon where um, it's going to feel there's going to be this tension around whether or not it's like safe to invite people like into our literal homes, not just our backyard, but into our homes for a meal and that kind of thing. I think that some of you have already been doing that a little bit where you feel it's comfortable or safe, but I think that this is something we're going to need to figure out how to recapture when, uh, as, as things continue to get better. That's going to be a really important part of uh, getting awakening from this pandemic. In the grand scheme of things, these are tiny things, though. These are small, mustard seed-sized things. But with God, they can grow into something far more significant than we could ever imagine. God takes the tiniest seeds and grows them into something huge. He takes these tiny kernels of faithfulness and sows them into something beautiful. Do not despise small beginnings. Toward the end of the parable, Jesus makes reference to uh, the birds of the air perching on these trees, on these branches. And it kind of seems a little out of place. But it, check this out. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 17, this is the only time I'm going to be kind of flipping around, but Ezekiel chapter 17, God says this. This is starting at verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of the cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoot and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the, the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I love when God signs off a passage like that. Like it just bolsters a lot of confidence in me. He has spoken. He will do it. But what is it that he's going to do? God is saying he's going to plant a tree, that the tree will bear branches and become a powerful tree, and that it's going to attract every type of bird from all around. Every sort of bird is going to nest in the shade of its branches. This is the kingdom that Jesus is alluding to. And the birds represent the nations. Every ethnicity, every race, every tribe, every nation will be blessed by God's kingdom people. They will spread like a weed but bear fruit beyond compare. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of blessing. We are meant to be conduits of any blessing that we receive. God has not blessed us to hoard it. He's not blessed us to, blessed us to simply be thankful and then move on. 
He's blessed us to be his kingdom people across this city, across our nation, across the globe. This means that we ought to bless people through our giving, bless people through our acts of kindness, and we are to bless people by being the hands and the feet of Jesus in a world that so desperately needs to know the message of Jesus, that God came to the earth in flesh. He loved the unlovable. He restored the disenfranchised. He healed the sick and wounded. He died a painful death to bridge the gap for our sin. He paid the price in our place. He was raised to life to show victory over sin and the grave. And he ascends to be with God, with God the Father. And as he does that, he says these words. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the picture of the way that this mustard seed is just going to spread. He's saying the kingdom will spread and it will spread by the filling of the Spirit in you and in me. You will do my kingdom work everywhere. You will mirror my life. You will do all sorts of jobs and occupations. You will become doctors and social workers and stay-at-home parents and fast food servers and engineers and teachers and tradespeople and warehouse workers and stockbrokers and car assemblers and musicians and artists. And whatever you do, wherever you go, you are planting and germinating the mustard seeds and you are spreading the kingdom. Whatever God has called you to do in life, he has not called you to do it in vain, all of you. No matter how small it might feel, he has placed you where you are and he has purposed you where you are for a reason, to help others experience the abundant life that only Jesus can give. The life that was intended for us from the, from the dawn of humanity, really. When, when done rightly, our calling can make a difference in our city, in our nation, and in our world. When we consider the parable of the mustard seed, it's clear that we are all to be a part of what God is doing. We're all invited to play a role. And the question I want you to ask this morning as we close is simply this. What is my role? Even if you see it as something small and insignificant, what is my role? Open our eyes to the kingdom at work, God. Open our eyes to where you are. May we see you. Just take a moment wherever you are right now and just reflect on your calling in life, whether it's a part of your job or something totally separate from the job that you do. Think on what it would be like to just have a mustard seed-sized faith that God is going to do a remarkable work in and through you. And just allow that grace to wash over you. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have spoken through this short parable. It's easy to overlook, but you have 
given us something to meditate on and reflect on for this week and for a lifetime. May we be people who are just desperate to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we sense your leading and calling in our lives, knowing that your kingdom will spread regardless, but we want to join it. We want to be a part of this good and beautiful and wonderful thing. May you help us to know what that looks like in our world, in our context. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this week? Prompt us in how we might live differently in light of this, God. We pray, amen.